Can we get your name, please? Katerina Duarte Burgett. And uh, we've been swearing in witnesses. So, uh, Ms. Burgett, do you swear that the evidence you're going to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. I swear, so help me, God. Thank you very much. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I am 51. I am a mother of four. Um, three girls and a boy, from ranging in age from 21 to 13. Um, my husband and I own a business in the hospitality industry. I am a retired healthcare professional. I retired to raise my children a long time ago. Um, and during the pandemic, when they were uh, short of PSWs, I uh, because of my background, I, we could quickly train, and I went to work in long-term care. What is it that brings you here today? Um, today, like everyone else, I just feel it's important that our stories get told. And um, I would like people who maybe aren't aware of the consequences, what some of us went through, um, to, to listen. And so um, you mentioned about your children. What, what are the impacts of the last few years? Uh, what has that been on your children? Um, well, all four of them have felt the impacts in very different ways. So early on, um, my husband is a, a retired scientist, and with my background in healthcare too, we questioned everything. Uh, we've always been like that anyway. So um, for the kids, so if I start with my oldest, who happens to be, was in third year of biology, at Queen's University, um, we made her aware that the vaccine had uh, no long-term safety data and that we did not want her to take it. And we showed her the information and we held our breaths and we let her decide for herself what she wanted to do. There was very real threat that she'd be kicked out of school. And she was. We are grateful that she decided she wasn't going to take it, but it was very difficult. What happened to her exactly? So, ironically, she the January before she was uh, dismissed from university, she um, got COVID and uh, from a fully vaxxed friend, um, and. Um, we tried to say, well, I mean, what difference does it make? This friend is allowed to return after the Christmas break. She is not. They've both had COVID. She's fully recovered now. Um, anyways, so no, there was none of that. She had to come home. She went through a very difficult time with um, maybe not depression, but feeling very low, uh, being ostracized by friends who, was, who were afraid. Her roommates made her life very difficult. Very, as somebody who'd always been popular um, just couldn't believe that her friends would turn their backs. That these kids were ruled by fear. 
total fear. Did your daughter know if she was going to be going back to school? She had no idea if she would ever be able to go back, and she was devastated. What ended up happening? So she came home, she worked, and then um, the mandates were dropped, and she was allowed to return in September of this pre this previous September. Uh, of course, now she's a semester behind, so she's going to have to go back and finish to get her degree. And your other children, what grades are they in? So my middle two are in, were in high school throughout, um, and then my youngest is now in grade seven. What did you see in terms of the impacts on them? Oof. Mentally, huge. So we've heard this morning about all the... Um, crazy school requirements and the cohorts and the not being able to socialize and the fear that was instilled in all of these children. Um, and of course they felt they had no social lives. It was depressing. They didn't leave their rooms. They had no sports. They had no outlet, no clubs, no nothing. In your school district, was it mostly remote learning over the last three years? Remote learning. Yep. And luckily, a very good friend of mine is a retired high school teacher, so she was able to help my teens. Um, and my son, I said, no, you're not logging in. We're going to homeschool for the, for the time that you're meant to be online. Um, from your personal uh, viewpoint, what did you see in terms of the effects of remote learning? Well... I mean, if if I if I focus on my youngest son, um, there's no socialization. There's nobody to play with. Um, he had a diagnosed speech impediment, and um, luckily we were fortunate enough that his speech therapy could continue online. Um, when I when he did return to work and uh, they were meant to be masked, I said, no. I mean, show me the data that a masked child with a speech impediment isn't going to be adversely affected. The, and it didn't exist. So we were given an exemption. He was the only one in the school of 250. He's got a spine of steel um, who was unmasked. The following year, I was no longer able to just say as a parent, my child will not be masked all day. And that we had to use his um, speech impediment as the reason for them to tick that box. Uh, I'm guessing that was a bit of a struggle to get that exemption. I think... They knew we weren't going to back down as parents, and they were happy to have the out. I felt for other parents who I'd heard from who didn't have that excuse, and I hated to use it as an excuse, you know, child should be masked six hours a day, never mind an hour a day. Um, yeah, I hated to use his disability as an excuse, but in the end I had to. And tell us a little bit about the impacts of um, mandates and COVID policies generally on you. Well, on me, uh, because I was working in long-term care, um, we were being tested every day. 
and I came through the pipeline. Even though I had um, I had started, I had I had trained as a PSW through the pandemic because they needed us. Um, it was coming through that you were going to have to be vaxxed. And by then, my husband and I were pretty sure, well, we knew right away that uh, we were not going to do that. And as a re he's a retired scientist, and and, um, and I've worked in healthcare, and it was just insane to me that a rushed product for which we now know there was ample evidence that didn't even stop transmission and that carries huge risk, could be mandated for anyone. So I said I wasn't going to do that. And I tried to find ways around us that I, I will submit to testing before every shift. I said, you know, there's evidence of of really good prophylaxis coming out of South America. No, it was just, it was a non-starter. There was no way. It's the vaccine or you're out. And the irony is all of my colleagues in long-term care are tested every single shift. So you lost your job? I lost my job. When was that? October of um, 2021. Have you gone back? No. This, our county is a county-owned facility, and our county still has a COVID vaccine mandate. And I understand you're a churchgoer? Yes, I am a singer too, and I sing in a few different choirs, and I sing in our church choir. I also work very part-time in our church office, but um, through COVID, choirs were devastated. <laughs> so they, uh, we weren't allowed to sing as a group, and they asked for volunteers to maintain the music in, uh, ministry. Uh, which I did. Nobody else volunteered. Everyone was too afraid. I said I'd do it. Um, and then when choirs were allowed to resume, there was a catch, and you had to be vaxxed. So the people I had stood beside for 10 years, twice a week, every week, um, said nothing. They watched me walk away. So you couldn't sing either? Nope. Today? Today it's okay. I can sing, but only in selective choirs because some choirs require more protection, I guess. And so it's okay to sing in my church choir every Sunday, just like it is in, I assume, every church in the diocese. However, for some years, I had sung in a diocesan choir, which brought together people from all over, um, and we did sort of the big events. Um, and in that particular choir, you must be vexed. You mentioned about a business that you and your husband own? Yep, we own a business, and uh, we own a brewery, and... Um, 
So early on, my husband is a retired scientist. Early on, um, he actually happens to be a yeast specialist and um, RT-QPCR specialist. He's performed PCR tests hundreds of thousands of times in his postdoctoral research. Um, but in the beginning of the pandemic, we thought, well, we, you know, we have to do our bit. We're going to help. We have, we have to do our bit. And he ended up making hand sanitizer when there was a huge shortage. We donated about $30,000 worth of materials, and he made the hand sanitizer and donated it all to local... Um, there was um, a charity set up that was trying to get PPE and supplies to uh, local hospitals, doctors' offices, and businesses. So this was in the early days of the pandemic? Yes, yes. And uh, was your business, did that remain open? Well, because alcohol was essential, um, we were allowed to keep the bottle shop open so people could come in and they could buy, uh, but we couldn't operate, um, you know, the bar. You, you couldn't come in and sit and have a beer. You could come buy it and take it home. Um, but so, I mean, and the other thing is the pubs and restaurants are closed, so we had nobody to sell to. So our business suffered like everybody else pretty much. And from a social perspective in your community, how would you say you've been in, you and your family had been impacted? We've lost a lot of friends, but we've made so many more friends. We discovered um, at our lowest, and like many people, feeling so low, just like a cloud over your head constantly. Um, we discovered an underground of people who were suffering in all sorts of ways. And we started to meet. I mean, this was during lockdown, too. It was all secret. It's just crazy to think about it now. But I, I found a lifeline. And I still remember showing up to that first meeting, and I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I wasn't alone. And we all told our stories. And we all had to park like far away so that neighbors wouldn't report you. And those people are some of my best friends now. Yeah, it's a really dark time, really dark time. Do you feel like you're coming out of it now? Yes. Yes, things are somewhat back to normal. But like many people, when I struggle with the idea of forgiveness, because forgiveness does not happen in a vacuum. It requires an apology. It requires a sense of what was done wrong, an acknowledgement of what was done, and reparations, whatever they may be, and a system put in place so that it 
won't happen again. We talked in the education sector earlier with Mr. McCurdy about acknowledgements by officials and um, doesn't seem like that's occurred. What, what have you seen, if anything? Nothing, nothing. No one's apologized, no one, not on a personal level. Actually, that's not true. I've had one or two people on a personal level apologize. And I am so ready to forgive on any other level, though. No one's apologized, no one. It needs to start from the top down, from the politicians. Public health needs to be gutted, reprehensible. And they need to apologize, they need to pay for what they've done. Um, but I'll take an apology any day. I wonder if any of the commissioners have any questions. Thank you very much for Thank coming. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks.